Thank you, Father Moriarty. It's a joy and a, a gift to be here with you all this evening. If any of you were here for uh, the lecture last Friday, it was Father Becker, and he's my rector at St. John Vianney Seminary, and I caught him kind of right as he was about to leave, and he, he said, oh, I heard you're, you know, you're on the list, too, to give a lecture. And he said, don't worry, I'm going to set the bar really low for you. <laughs> so I don't know if he... I bet it was a great talk, but that's what he told me he was going to do. He's like, yours is going to sound really good compared to mine. <laughs> There's been a question in recent times about St. Joseph that's in some ways kind of changed our conventional understanding of him. And the question has been, is St. Joseph old or young? When he was uh, married to Mary... Was he much, much older than her, or was he more or less her, her age? Mother Angelica was asked this question one time on EWTN. A caller called in and, and asked Mother, and she said, Well, you know, there's no official church teaching whether St. Joseph is old or young. But she said, But I prefer a young St. Joseph. And then she said this with her usual wit. She said, all I know, sweetie, is old men don't walk to Egypt. <laughs> I think she has a really good point there. To think of all the travels that St. Joseph did, it would have required someone with a robust uh, stature. Just to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem, we usually don't think much of that, but that's, that's 80 miles, 80 miles on foot. And then to go from Nazareth, or excuse me, from Bethlehem, to the border of Egypt would be another 40 miles. And the, the terrain would have been rough, the heat would have been intense, and the dangers would have been many. So why do we have this conventional notion of St. Joseph as much older than Mary? Well, the reason is uh, that it comes from the apocryphal sources. So these are not scriptural sources, but they come uh, centuries after the scriptures were, um, were written. And they claim to have insights about the lives, the lives of the Holy Family. And sometimes these have been perhaps helpful, but at other times there are significant inaccuracies and kind of legends that are weaved into them. And then even some kind of bizarre episodes. So one in particular that I kind of thought was very bizarre... The gospel of the so-called gospel of Peter at the time of the resurrection speaks of giant angels and a talking cross and Jesus with so gigantic in stature that his head is is in the clouds. And so there's a reason that maybe the church has found these to be less than reputable. And in fact the the church fathers have uh, often criticized these apocryphal texts. So some of the names for these would be like the Pseudo-Evangelium of James, as I mentioned, the Apocryphal Gospel of Peter, uh, Pseudo-Matthew, and so forth. So that's where we get part of our, that conventional notion. And they, why did they, why did they have an older St. Joseph? Well, they they did that in order to protect Mary's virginity. That was the main reason. 
then there wouldn't be as much suspicion about whether or not Mary was actually a true virgin. But in doing this, they defeat really one of the major reasons that God would give Mary a loving husband. To uh, have an ordinary, uh, to have the appearance of ordinary life and to have public honor to their family. That's, that's one of the major reasons. But just imagine uh, an old man, one apocryphal text is 91 years old, marrying a 15 or 16-year-old girl. I think that would be a little conspicuous. St. Jose Maria Escriva, he says, I see St. Joseph as a strong young man, perhaps a few years older than Our Lady, but in the prime of his life and work. That's the way that I see St. Joseph. Venerable Fulton Sheen as well, he gives really a rock-solid argument for a young St. Joseph. I can't go into it all, but uh, it's a really beautiful argument, and he, he makes this point. He says, To make Joseph appear pure only because his flesh had aged is like glorifying a mountain stream that has dried. He says, The church will not ordain a man to his priesthood who has not his vital powers. She wants men who have something to tame, rather than those who are tame because they have no energy to be wild. It should be no different with God. I love that point. To make Joseph appear pure only because of his flesh had aged is like glorifying a mountain stream because it is dried up. So I believe St. Joseph, uh, as he was raising our blessed Lord and as he married our, our blessed mother, had great youthful vigor. And therefore, he's particularly a strong model for our youth. Now, tonight, I'd like to speak about three aspects of St. Joseph's heart. I'd like to speak about his, his chaste heart, his pure chaste heart. I'd like to speak about his courageous heart. And then I'd like to speak about his watchful and discerning heart. And why why am I focusing on the heart? Well, in some ways, the the heart, I believe, has been perhaps neglected in uh, in theology and sometimes in in the lives of of us as Christians. But the Bible speaks of the heart over a thousand times, over a thousand times in Scripture. And the heart, the Catechism says, is the place of encounter with God. It's the place of encounter. It's the place of covenant, it says. This is from Catechism, uh, as it starts the section on prayer. It says, The heart is the dwelling place where I am, where I live. The heart is our hidden center, beyond the grasp of our reason and of others. Only the Spirit of God can fathom the human heart and know it fully. It is the place of encounter. Because as an image of God, we live in relation. It is the place of the covenant. Remember what Jesus' main criticism of the Pharisees of his day was? What did he say? Hardness of heart. It wasn't that they weren't faithful to all the precepts. They were very, very faithful. They would tithe even cumin. You know, if you think about the spices in your cabinet... They'd tithe dill and mint and cumin, it says in Scripture. 
the, the smallest things the law. And Jesus says that's, that's right in some ways. But he says, but they forgot. They forgot the weightier matters. Things like justice and mercy and compassion. The things of the heart. Or remember the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. Where he is resentful about how his father is treating the, the, the younger brother. And he says to him, I've served you all these years. I've served you all these years. There's a sense of, of slavishness to him. I've slaved for you. And the reality in that story is that the father has been blessing him all those years. And he says, my son, all that I have is yours. But he doesn't have the, the heart to receive those blessings. Even as we began Lent, we were told in the first reading of Ash Wednesday, rend your hearts, not your garments, and return to the Lord. So let's ask St. Joseph tonight, even as we marvel at his virtue and at his love, at his courage, let's ask St. Joseph that he would melt any of the hardness of our own hearts. And I would first like to reflect on his chaste heart. St. Joseph's chaste heart should not be underestimated. He was united in heart, mind, and body with Our Lady. Or excuse me, heart, mind, and soul, excuse me, but never, never in body. Venerable Fulton Sheen, he says, No husband and wife ever loved one another so much as Joseph and Mary. They had a great, profound love for each other. And that even without sexual relations. They had a pure love. And that's something that's hard for a society to understand, that two people could love each other so much, a man and a woman, could, could serve each other and could, could see each other in such love and without sexual relations. That's a great model for us. Just imagine for yourself, imagine, especially for our, our men here, that you're, you're wedded to the most beautiful woman in the world. And even down throughout the centuries, the most beautiful. And not just externally, but also interiorly beautiful. And yet, he didn't have any lust in his heart. He did not have any lust in his heart. Rather, it was a, it was a heart that constantly was, was loving her, constantly serving her. Every thought, every emotion was governed and sanctified. Imagine that. All ordered to love. That's the goal for us, and that's the goal for our youth, is, is that same love. It's not mere abstinence. Abstinence is, is perhaps part of the process. It's, it's before we, we're married. Yes, we do need to abstain, but the goal is, is not abstinence. The goal is this beautiful, uh, chaste heart. Because true chastity is, is not mere abstinence. It's not, it's, not like Jesus, excuse me, it's not like St. Joseph was constantly kind of repressing his desires, living sort of a frustrated life. No, he's, his heart was, was so integrated that he was loving her, uh, loving her even as he was 
um, being chaste and pure, even as he was serving her. I think this is an important distinction for us to make with our youth, that uh, abstinence is, is simply a no, and again, it's, that's an important thing, but, but chastity is fundamentally, St. John Paul II says, fundamentally a yes from which a no follows. It's fundamentally a yes, just like every other important thing in our life is, every other important commitment. In order to say yes, we have to say no to a lot of other things. They would remind us that a lot in seminary, that uh, you aren't saying no to every beautiful woman you ever see. You know, you're saying no to one woman in order to say yes to this high calling of God. In our society, we become very non-committal because we're afraid of saying no. We're afraid of saying no, and, and it, there's, there's so much pressure on our youth because they're afraid of, of doing something wrong. They're afraid of missing out. And that really just, it kind of enslaves us. It really, uh, even growing up myself, I remember feeling so much pressure to not miss out on things. And left me without, without real uh, commitments at times. We know, and especially during the season of Lent, I think we know that if we can't really say no to our passions, that's not freedom, that's slavery. That's not freedom, that's, that's slavery. And in Lent, hopefully we're experiencing more and more of this renewal, of renewal of our desires that they're more and more ordered to what the deep heart truly longs for. That's really the goal. One of my friends in seminary during my uh, time, he didn't end up becoming a priest, but he was kind of struggling in the first year to not live sort of the normal college life. Uh, And he was, I think, um, it was pretty easy for him later on to find girlfriend, you know, to find a girlfriend and and he, he went to a wise priest during that time in seminary, and he, he said, you know, it's really tough, you know, to, to give up the party life, to give up the normal college life, and, uh, you know, I'd really like to date these girls. And the priest said to him, he said, you know what, I think, I think you're not really struggling about whether or not you want to be a priest, you're struggling about whether or not you want to be a Christian. It's like the choice is about whether or not you want to be a Christian. Because everyone is called to chastity. Jesus, what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus radicalizes the law and he, he points it to where it comes from, right? He points to the heart. It's from the heart, he says, that, that evil comes. John Paul II, when he's reflecting on this, he says, Jesus doesn't accuse the heart so much as the disordered fallen desires we can have. And that's not really true to the heart in the first place. That's not in the deep heart. 
Chastity, therefore, is about an integration of our desires and thus of our hearts. Our hearts have to be healed. Our hearts have to be restored. Now, how do we do that? Well, in order for that to happen, just as St. Joseph did, we have to to guard our hearts. And yes, it does mean saying no at times. It means saying no to the fleeting self-gratification of our, of our culture, of our society. But it's ultimately a yes. It's ultimately a, a yes to what our hearts truly desire. So to our, especially to our youth out there, do you guard your hearts? Especially in what you watch and what you listen to, even in the, the conversations you, ha- you have, do you guard your heart? Let's ask St. Joseph for a share in his chaste heart. I'm also very much inspired by St. Joseph's courageous heart. I like to speak about his courageous heart. I think this is very evident in Scripture, and we usually don't think twice about it. In Matthew chapter 2, we hear... Right after they had given birth and the Magi had come, then it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. So remember the context here. Remember that St. Joseph has been through a lot, right? St. Joseph has been through an unexpected, even uh, seemingly scandalous pregnancy of Mary, and then having to go an 80-mile journey through dangerous roads to go on foot, and then to have to search out an inn in Bethlehem, and then to have the humiliation of not having an inn and having to use a manger, which is a a feeding trough for animals. And then after all that, then to be told in the middle of the night that you need to just pack up and leave because the king is going to come and kill your child. That would have seemed just crazy if you think about it. To think of what he went through, to, to think that, you know, food and water would have been in short supply to be exposed to robbers, to be exposed to wild animals. I mean, even now, traveling with a young baby and a a, a mother who has just given birth is hard enough, but to think in those days, to think how dangerous that would have been. I imagine St. Joseph, all along the way, especially when they maybe were in short supply or when they encountered any sort of wild animals. I imagine him just constantly praying the psalms, the psalms of, of trust and of faith, saying, God, I, I trust in you. Lord, help me. Any commonsensical person in his, uh, in his time would have thought Joseph was crazy would have thought he was crazy for putting his family in such great danger. But Joseph, he hears the word of the Lord, and he does it. It just says he 
Right away during the night, he rose, took the child, and went to Egypt. He doesn't wait for second opinions. He doesn't sort of ask around the village. He doesn't make sure there are good travel conditions. He goes. He knows that he's called to the high adventure of God's plan for him. The high adventure of God's plan for him. And he doesn't hesitate in that. God's plan for us is never a boring one. Our plan for ourselves sometimes can be boring because we would prefer to have things be kind of safe and to be comfortable. But God's plan is not boring. We often aren't very interested in sort of the adventure of the spiritual life. I think oftentimes we're kind of like, and this is the the genius of J.R.R. Tolkien, we're very much like Bilbo in The Hobbit. If you know that wonderful story that Bilbo is there and he's in his nice, cozy, comfy little hobbit hole, perfect place to smoke a pipe, you know, to read a good book. And he says, I don't want anything to do with any adventure. Oftentimes we can be like that. To resist that call to go out, like, like Joseph did. The Lord calls us out. He calls us beyond ourselves. That's what all the saints knew. That's what we see throughout the Bible. God calls Moses. He calls Abraham. He calls all the patriarchs to something beyond themselves. And he calls you to something beyond yourself. It calls you to greatness. Pope Benedict would say, one of my favorite lines from him, he says, the world offers you comfort, but you were not made for comfort. You were made for greatness. Again, we live in a society that can be so non-committal. I work among you know, college students. Even though they're seminarians, they, they can still be pretty non-committal to things. And again, it's, it's because of that fear of what might I be missing out on? But with, with St. Joseph, what is, we see is that as soon as he sees some, some, uh, the greatness that he's called to, the Lord's will for him, he goes. He rises in the middle of the night and he goes. Now, I think this is characteristic of St. Joseph's whole life that he he didn't hesitate when it came to God's will. He didn't wait to work out his salvation or his sanctification until he was old. And this is another good lesson for our young people. Oftentimes there can be a notion that we, we kind of breathe in, I think, from our society. This notion that, especially in college years, that this is your time, you know. You need to, to live your life to the full. You need to, you know, do all the things that are fun, and then you can kind of worry about the more important things later. And again, there, there can be a lot of pressure on our young people with that. And it's really a lie, right? It's, it's not your time hate to break it to you, but it's not really your time. Your time is, is a gift. 
C.S. Lewis, I think, says this really well in the screw tape letters. He's, uh, screw tape is kind of coaching this younger demon, right? And he, he's trying to tell him that he should, he should have his subject constantly think of his time as my own time, you know? It's really convicting, these words. I love this. He says, You must therefore zealously guard in his mind the curious assumption, my time is my own. Let him have the feeling that he starts each day as the lawful possessor of 24 hours. And then he says, The man can neither make nor retain one moment of time. It all comes to him by pure gift. He might as well regard the sun and moon as his chattels, or his personal property. It is not our own time. It's a pure gift. And the reality is that, uh, as St. Jerome and St. Augustine say, any path of vice we have from our youth becomes like, they say, like an iron chain. It's like a tyrannical force, they say, that can weigh us down throughout our lives. The Lord is merciful, of course, and the Lord can heal us. But he respects our choices. St. Joseph, he did not hesitate to step out into the high adventure of the spiritual life. While he might have had trepidation, he continued to call on God for his help. He knew that he was not made for comfort, but for greatness. So we ask St. Joseph for a share in his courageous heart. Lastly, I'd like to speak about his watchful heart, his discerning heart. The scriptures give us a clear insight into St. Joseph's deep interiority. We see this, as I already mentioned, with the treacherous journey that he took because of the call of the Lord to go to Egypt. And then, after presumably some years in Egypt, then he's told to go back. He's told to go back to the same place where they were threatened. In Pope Benedict, he reflects on this in a really beautiful way. He says, Once again, this shows us an essential quality of the figure of St. Joseph, his capacity to perceive the divine and his ability to discern. Only a man who is inwardly watchful for the divine, only someone with a real sensitivity for God and his ways, can receive God's message in this way. He says, only a man who is inwardly watchful for the divine. I had to ask myself, as I go about my day, am I inwardly watchful for the divine? Pope Benedict, uh, in another place, he says that God's first language is silence. His first language is silence. Sometimes when we hear about the saints and about how they heard these calls from God, sometimes do radical things, we kind of think that maybe they like heard this booming voice, you know, come down from heaven, you know, will you please, you know, go start a convent, so forth. And sometimes that did happen where it's audible, but most of the time it was actually God speaking through his first language, through silence. 
If you are struggling at all to know the Lord's will for you, how much do you clear away distractions? How much do you give yourself to silence? There's a story of, a really beautiful story, just in this past year of a Harvard Law graduate, Lisa Fitzgerald was her name, or is her name. She just entered the church uh, at Pentecost and she said that she had never been, uh, she's an atheist and had never been um, militant in her atheism. And she was intellectually open to the possibility of God. She was very, very bright. But she says this, she says, I had never embraced the void. I had made myself as busy as possible. I never left any space open. Does that sound at all familiar? She never embraced the void. Young people, you are being robbed in a lot of ways, if you allow yourselves, being robbed of the gift of silence. The great philosopher Socrates would say, the unexamined life is not worth living. It becomes sort of a, just a treadmill, you know, that we go from one thing and one distraction to the next and the next and the next, and we don't even know ourselves at a certain point. I was once at a high school uh, in giving a lecture to the students there, and I, I was speaking about silence during Advent, and I asked them, you know, think about your day and, and think about how much time uh, do you have in silence? And I was expecting them to think like, well, maybe I have a couple minutes here, a couple minutes there. But what they pretty uh, quickly said to me is they said, well, do you mean like when we're in the shower, you know, or do you mean like when I'm about to fall asleep at night? I was like, no, you know, actual time of, of silence. But it was so sad to me that they couldn't, couldn't actually think of any particular time. There's no intentional time of just sitting with themselves. And oftentimes when, when young people do that in, in prayer and adoration, maybe you've had this experience, they'll, they'll come back and sometimes they'll, they'll say to the priest, I just, I, I began to see how angry I am. For some reason, it made me really angry or it made me really frustrated or it made me really jealous. Well, what's going on there? Well, silence is a, it's a magnifier. God reveals us to ourselves. We start to, to notice what's going on in the heart. And that can be a little scary because we haven't really attended to the heart. It, it really takes courage to, to be with ourselves in silence. I know how often for young people, and I've, I definitely fall into this myself, that if you're doing any sort of kind of menial task, you know, if you're cooking or if you're folding the laundry or if, if you're cleaning, just to put something on of like, well, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to put on a podcast or I'm going to put on some music. And every, you know, even if it's something very short, we go for a short walk. Do you give yourself, do you actually clear away some of that with time for silence? Do you ever embrace the void? 
with any of those, those thoughts and feelings that, that come up that are uncomfortable in prayer, just to, to bring that before the Lord. Lord, I'm feeling really angry about this. I'm feeling jealous. Why is this? Lord, I don't know what to do with this. Lord, I give this over to you. St. Joseph would have, would have related his heart to the Lord throughout his entire life. Any of those struggles, the, the flight to Egypt, the, the fear about what people would say with the seemingly scandalous pregnancy with Mary, to relate those, uh, relate what was going on to the Lord. So my invitation to you, and this is an invitation I would make oftentimes to uh, one of my past parishes, uh, very simple, Bible before breakfast. That to start your day, just, you know, to set your alarm clock back five minutes early, you aren't going to lose much sleep there. But to actually intentionally have that time with the Lord. And just to read, just, you know, pick up the Psalms, to have that time with Jesus. Bible before breakfast. For me, it's, it, I would say, the most peaceful time of the day. And that's the time that you can guarantee that's without distractions. And again, you can cultivate, as Pope Benedict says, that, that inward watchfulness for the divine. Do not be afraid of silence. Get used to silence, especially our young people. Try to get used to silence. Try to actually be able to sit with yourself, to be able to sit with the Lord, to be drawn in, because God's first language is silence. I'd like to just end with a prayer asking for St. Joseph's intercession. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and loving Father, we give you thanks and praise for this year of St. Joseph. We ask through his intercession that we would have a pure, integrated heart, a heart that's inflamed with love as his was, that we have a courageous heart that boldly takes the high adventure of the spiritual life that you call us to, that is never afraid but trusts in you, and that we would have that inward watchfulness for the divine, that we would open up spaces of silence in our lives, that we would hear your words to us. We ask this all through Christ our Lord. Amen.